listeners, welcome to another episode of Exploring Mental Illness, Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Too Afraid to Ask. I am Austin Ricketts, not Derek Mohan. He is out this week. Uh, he's had a few issues that he needed to attend to, but uh, Kerry is still here. How you doing, Kerry? I'm doing great today, Austin. How are you? Doing pretty good. For all the listeners to know, uh, our episodes are now on, available on YouTube on the AACS page. So if you search for youtube.com slash AACS, you will find the Exploring Mental Illness podcast. So hopefully it will be a little bit easier to find uh, for anyone who's on YouTube and searching for mental illness. Wow, I feel yeah. like we've made it to YouTube. Yes. <laughs> I was excited when we made it to iTunes, but YouTube. Yep, yep. So. I wonder how many like, do, can people like us and all that? Or Yeah, you can subscribe on the AACS page, and so you'll get uh, whenever new episodes are posted. And you can also like, uh, so yeah, like like our episodes if you... If you're listening. If you follow us <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you have an opportunity to like us, like us. Definitely. So I'm Carrie Ballou. I am the Community Relations Coordinator at Fuller Hospital here in Attleboro, Massachusetts, and your host for today, or your co-host with Austin. Again, as Austin had mentioned, Derek Mohan couldn't be with us today. He had some, some issues come up. We'll have him explain more on our next episode but whom we do have here today, and we're very excited to have with us, are two representatives from the Department of Mental Health here in Massachusetts. So joining us today is Dan Fisher. He is the site director for the Taunton Attleboro DMH region, and Dale Silvaria, Community Integration Specialist, also for Taunton and Attleboro. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Let's just jump right into this and uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves and your background and kind of how you got or became uh, part of the DMH family. Dan, do you want to start? Sure. I actually have a degree in theology. I had uh, started to go down the road of being an ordained priest for the Catholic Church. Um, But in the midst of that training, I found that I was dealing with depression. And long story short or short story long, I didn't continue on with that because the church at the time didn't want people who had mental illness in it. So I I bring that forward because um, there are many people who are stigmatized by histories of mental health or getting mental health services. But what it did for me was brought me into studying uh, mental health services, human development, and I ended up going from a retail um, institution (laughs) selling power tools into the Department of Mental Health because I really wanted to serve folks. I've been with the department for 25 years. I started as a case manager working with adults in the Attleboro area for the most part. Uh, Then I had an opportunity to work in the kids' world working with people across the Taunton-Attleboro site, basically anyone from five years old to around 19 years old. I found that very rewarding and very tiring. Um, so I had an opportunity to move into a supervisor's role. I did that for a few years and then had an opportunity to work as the director of our crisis unit in Norton for a short time. Um, when I came back from that, I had an opportunity to move into the site director's job at Taunton-Attleboro site. Fantastic. Wow, what a neat background. I I never would have guessed that you went from Mm pre-priesthood to to DMH and working with those in need, though it it does make sense. Absolutely. I'm so happy that you are uh, 
in the position that you're in. You have the perfect personality, and obviously your experience is fantastic. I remember us first meeting, and you know, I always feel like I can reach out and rely on you and working with folks from our hospital and in the community who have mental health in this area. So, Thank you. Fantastic. Welcome. And Dale, how about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at DMH. Thank you for having me, and sure. So I started my career in human services back in the late 80s while I went to school. And throughout those years, I've worked with many folks from various backgrounds, different populations in the community, which has all led me here to the Department of Mental Health at the site office to work with Dan. Fantastic. And what exactly does a community integration specialist do? A community integration specialist does various things. So I will come out in the community and do events like this or our community conversation that we had. I will liaison with many of the acute care hospitals or Fuller Hospital, McLean's. Any person in the community who has questions about the department or who has questions about a loved one with mental health issues will call me. It sounds very familiar. I feel like we are cut from the same cloth. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Well, great to have you. How long have you been with uh, the department? I've been with the Department of Mental Health about 12 years, and I've been with the state for about 15. That's some longevity. So that's 40 years between the two of you. Yep, labor of love. It's not uncommon in the Department of Mental Health to have people who have worked 30, 35, 40 years. uh, There's a lot of longevity in the department. That's wonderful. Tell us a little bit more for folks and our listeners out there who may not even understand what the, the purpose and history of, where, what is this Department of Mental Health, what is it you do, and how does it kind of integrate into to my life or the life of our listeners? Well, to give a, a, a timeline, so to speak, of the department, um, it goes all the way back to the 1800s. And what the initiative was, and quite frankly, Massachusetts was at the forefront of thinking about how to care for folks with mental illness and those at the time who we would call today developmentally disabled. So around the, in the 1800s, they, there was a patchwork of community, county, mental health facilities, and those mental health facilities tried to meet the needs of the folks who had these concerns. But before that, people just took care of their own. And because of the lack of understanding of it, it produced a patchwork of initiatives. And the department um, came to life, so to speak, as an opportunity for the state to try to bring it all together. So in about uh, 1899, they developed what they called the Department of Mental Diseases, and it was created to kind of take that patchwork of local government and county organized care uh, of those with mental illness to kind of bring them together. And that sufficed, and there was development of a patchwork of state hospitals throughout the state on Taunton State being one, Worcester State being the oldest. We currently have Tewkesbury out there. Um, There was one also in Middleborough. Um, Several others, I I can't recall all the names, but uh, there was all of those things. And there were actually hundreds of people in those hospitals. Um, And those hospitals were also created in a very enlightened way in which some of, of what we take for granted now, units, where folks were kind of brought together and cared for. They also had farms. They had cobbler shops. They were really an entity unto themselves. So that was the beginning of it. 
when things begin to really change is back in 1961 with President Kennedy, and he had put together the National Joint Commission on Mental Illness and Health, and that was the beginning of a effort to try and engage those um, in the community with mental health concerns in more of what we see today, which is more of an outpatient effort. And the dream had been at that time that there would be a, a strong network of community-based services that would meet the mental health needs of folks, not in an institution, but in their own homes. Um, that didn't quite realize the dream of it because it was, an, in a sense, an unfunded or underfunded mandate by the federal government. And so it was actually not until the 1980s when the true deinstitutionalization in Massachusetts began. And that allowed for folks who might have otherwise been, quote unquote, in the back units of hospitals to move forward in the community with community-based supports that would allow them to live at home um, or in group homes or in, with their family and receive supports. And that was really where case management and case management sites had their origin. And they were meant to leave the hospital, and many of the early workers in the Department of Mental Health were people who actually worked on the units, and they moved themselves out of the hospitals into community-based services. Um, they had mental health centers. Um, we still have a mental health center in Brockton. And out of the hospitals came the nurses, the mental health workers, and they began to um, form residential supports and community-based supports to meet people in their homes. Along with that really came alive the outpatient services we're all familiar with now, and to the extent that they are the backbone of the care of people in the community, um, the Department of Mental Health more became the linkage place, that we would be the place that would bring people together, help them through the referral process, help to link them to outpatient care, perhaps in some cases provide them with residential supports, but for the most part it is an opportunity for the state to support people living independently in the community. So you became the hub. And that, that's kind of where what I remember. My first exposure to DMH it was in the early 2000s when I had graduated from college and started working for a, a nonprofit in Massachusetts in which it focused on individuals with chronic mental health issues. Primarily, I, at the time, I believe every one of the individuals who walked through our doors, it was a clubhouse model, um, who walked through our doors had DMH services. That linkage or liaison or coordinator of services is where what I remember. That is the DMH that I know. You had a caseworker. Essentially, anything from uh, living needs to mental health needs to the, like you had said supports on to uh, help an individual live independently was provided through this worker or this case manager that is fascinating that history that and by the way you did a fantastic job of explaining <laughs> the history of the department in general Looking back a little bit at the history, um, you had mentioned the establishment of state hospitals and the collaborative setting of utilizing the farms and, and, and individuals. Um, when did we start seeing kind of a shift from that model? 
Uh, as I said, it goes back to around the 80s and that shift of deinstitutionalization and to move folks out of the state hospital. And I certainly don't want to have a sense that that was a panacea or a nirvana uh, experience for people. It was very difficult. Um, one of the aspects that we can kind of as a keystone to what we have today is that we're person-centered in the Department of Mental Health. And, you know, you can imagine what life was for folks who were almost to the sense of without hope of ever getting out of an institution, now had the hope that they could with the appropriate kinds of medication. And I, I should say that the whole thing that made this possible was not only the effort of the department and the state effect, it was the creation of these medications that allowed for folks to become more stable in their condition, allowed them to be able to um, move out into the community as long as there were outpatient supports for them, case management supports. Um, it can't be underestimated the, the real miracle of some of these early medications of allowing folks to move in. So it was really a joint effort and then I think within the context of the um, move in, movement out and deinstitutionalization, we, we as a department, we learned along the way. There's been several iterations of what residential or, or in-home supports would be. Um, there's been several iterations of what case managers do or what the department's responsible for. And as you well know, in the private sector, much of this is driven by insurance and what insurance will cover what the federal government grants to states like Massachusetts, and basically what Massachusetts and its legislature and the Commonwealth is able to afford um, and dedicate to the care of those who uh, have mental illness. And so that's always a moving target. And so our services are flexible and as flexible as we can be. And like I said, they develop and evolve over time. When I first um, became a case manager, the prior institution actually had nurses with state who were with the state go out into the community and they gave the medications, they gave the IM shots. And that model was a very medical model at first, but it was also at the time a model that wrapped folks, even though we didn't call it wrap at the time, because you had the psychiatrists out in the community, you had caseworkers in the community, you had the nurses. And that developed um, to the point then where it was determined that the medical aspects of it were really something that was covered by a person's insurance or by mass health or whatever it was called at the time. And so that kind of went to one side of the support system and the case management became more of a community-based, more associated with people who had mental health degrees, social work degrees, and that was really the place where we negotiated what services people were in. We connected people with services, and basically we did whatever we needed to do. My first supervisor said, if it's a cup of coffee and a slice of pizza, to engage somebody, that's what you did. And my early career, I, uh, for, as an example, I would go out to the person's home, we would pick them up, and I would take them to their doctor's appointment and make sure that they saw the doctor and then I would pick the person from there um, having stayed in the waiting room or sometimes was even invited into the meeting to talk about how things were going. I would take the person over to CVS and we would drop off their prescription because the prescription is important and it was my way of making sure that it was filled. And then I would take the person, while the prescription was being filled, I would take them over to stop and shop, and we'd do their shopping. 
because I knew that that was also a need that the person had, and they would have difficulty if they didn't have that connection. Then we'd go back to CVS, pick up the medications. I would bring them home, make sure everything in the home was okay. We'd have a conversation about what the person's goals were and how they're going to meet those goals, and we made a contract for me to be um, to see them again. So I was really much that hub for that person. And it grew into other things, but now it's almost kind of back to that, um, where the department and case management has become a central service that we provide along with other services that we have. One of my favorite words is organic. I love the word organic because I feel like things need to grow organically. As you're talking, Dan, what I'm hearing and what I keep thinking in my head is that If you look at the Department of Mental Health, or for my listeners, when I say DMH, that is what DMH is to to me and in our podcast today, truly DMH and the foundation of DMH really grew organically over the years to meet the, the needs of the individuals. And even though maybe mental health, which also has grown and developed in many ways, but even though individuals' mental health needs, even though they've remained to a point unchanged over the years, you know, depression now could look have looked like depression 100 years ago. The people's environments and their access to services, as you've noted, have, has all changed. And I love hearing how DMH has really tried to grow and help individuals adapt. And I think an important way that that has happened is by the good folks who work for the department and the department itself, we're listening to what folks are saying about what they need and how we provide services, you know, and that really grew into what Dan had referenced earlier about the person-centered approach. So we won't say to you, this is what you need, which is sort of how it worked so long ago. We'll say, you're the expert on what you, what do you need? What do you struggle with? And how can we support you? So I think that's partly this organic growth as we've been trying to partner with the people that we serve. In the person-centered approach, when you're having the person that you're supporting tell you what they need, um, they have a voice in it. They're going to be motivated. There's no shame in saying, I own this, this is me, and it's okay, and this is what I need help with, versus me going in and saying, well, according to the DSM-5, you have major mental illness of bipolar with manic, you know, psychotic episodes. Well, what does that even mean? You know, it means something different for everybody. So it's helpful for our folks to tell us, this, this is what I experience. And so it's causing me from being able to keep a full-time job. I want to feel better so I can go out and support myself and get a full-time job. And I might say to you, well, what do you think that looks like to you? Where do you think we should start? And if someone says, I don't know, I might say, well, I have some ideas. What do you think? So it puts it all back for you and what your level of, you know, being comfortable with. Where do you want to start? Where are you in your journey? I don't know where you are in your journey. You know where you are. And if you're not quite sure, then we would have a conversation to help you get there. So would a case manager's uh, day kind of look similar today uh, as to what you were talking about, or has that changed a lot? Well, what what has changed to, um, and again, organically, but also the ebbs and flows, I should say that to the extent that department used to provide all things themselves, um, they now are um, mostly driven by economics, insurance, the capacity of the department in and of itself, 
to meet the needs of everyone. Um, we are in a system now in which we provide a variety of services by vendors. So the department will provide resources to a vendor who will then provide those services under the oversight of the department to the people that we serve. So currently we have um, services such as the Adult Community Clinical Services Program, which serves the most of um, the people in the department. Those services are provided through vendors um, and various vendors across the state, um, some smaller, some larger, some actually span many states. So it's up to the department to review and determine who will provide those services. And those services can be everything from what we would think of a, as a traditional group home to working with folks in their own apartments or with their family. And that, for the most part, is a clinical model that seeks first to assess the person um, psychiatrically as well as what their needs are. And again, in a very person-centered way, elicit from the person who is with their services what they need and what they want, um, but also convey back to the department what the resources need to be for this person. We also have clubhouse services, as you noted, which is um, they're really open to people who have um, need for something we'll call a work order day, who are interested in employment or education. Um, it's not simply a drop-in center any longer, which had been a model before this one. But again, the department and case managers are initiating these referrals and giving some oversight and supports for that. Um, we have a program for assertive community services, which is a team model. And that team model includes a psychiatrist or a nurse practitioner, nurses, case management roles, employment roles, clinical roles. And that's a team that wraps around the person in the community. And frankly, everybody on the team works with that person in one way or another. And we also have recovery learning communities. That is uh, an area-wide program that is a resource to people in the community who need to um, have assistance in trying to find their way to something that can help them. So although it may offer some groups, the real strength of, of that uh, community learning center is to send people out to the resources that will help them the most. And then um, we have emergency services that the state no longer provides here in the Taunton Harborough site. Um, and that's provided so that folks who are in acute need of psychiatric services have a place to have an assessment to determine whether or not they need ongoing level of care which um, Fuller is one of the places that someone might be assigned to go to in order to get that kind of acute care. And then um, we have some um, homeless services that are provided through the department through a contractor that kind of oversees the whole region for us that we go to as a resource. Often people in making application, Dale can talk more about that process, a lot of people alongside their mental health concerns or duly diagnosed concerns, mental health with alcohol or substance abuse, I think the number one thing we'll see on an application is they need housing. We're not a housing agency. We tried to remind folks that we're not a housing agency, um, but through case managers, through our providers, we certainly work with people to help them figure out what their housing needs are going to be. But, you know, that's a larger problem um, that has to do with um, poverty in the state and the lack of housing in the state. And 
But we do our best to try to connect people to all those resources. We're fond of saying that you really can't assist a person with their mental health services if they don't have a place to live. You, you had mentioned, Dan, a tremendous amount of services that DMH provides currently. Dale, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about who would this apply to in our communities? So this would apply to any person in our community who is having any symptoms, challenges, struggles with mental health. So it doesn't matter if you have insurance, you don't need to have money, you just need to call me up and say, I need help, I'm having depression, I'm having anxiety. And then we would start the application process. At our site office, we provide services to to children and to adults. We have my colleagues who work just with kids, and then Dan and I and our colleagues and staff, we work with adults. But any age, we will provide services to you. Would calling you be the most common way that people uh, request services? Or you mentioned that you work with a number of vendors and other services. Would people go to those vendors? And they? how would people connect most We commonly? receive applications from many different sources. So I may get phone calls where people would like help with the application process. We get physical applications from folks who have filled them out with their therapists from outpatient community providers or from mental health hospitals such as Fuller, family members, self-applying, anybody, anywhere. You can access our application online at mass.gov and you would hit the link to the Department of Mental Health. Um, I personally will email them to people if they need help. They can come in, we can help them fill it out. Most of the community providers have our applications. It's very simple to fill out, and they typically will assist folks in filling that out. Is there an interview process attached to your application? There is an interview. So once the application comes in, it goes to the Brockton area office where my colleague will determine whether or not somebody meets the clinical criteria. So do they have a major mental illness? Um, Does it impede in their ability to function fully? And if that's the case, they send it down to me, and I supervise two other people who also do the service authorization component to complete the application, and we will call you up. We have received your application. Would you like us to come out to your house to talk to you? Would you like to come into the office? Would you like to meet at Dunkin' Donuts? What are you comfortable with? And so formally it's called an interview, but I always say it's not an interview. It's just an informal conversation where you help me get to know you a little bit so we can figure out where to start with whatever you feel comfortable with. And there are no right or wrong answers. So I try to keep it very simple. And the uh, two other case managers who also work on the service authorization, very similar style. I think it's important to add that the way that um, Dale has just expressed it is, is perfect because we have a lot of folks who complain that they don't understand how to apply to the Department of Mental Health. They think that they have hoops to try to overcome. And from my perspective, I feel that we're losing something in the translation of how we do it. And I think that sometimes the fractured nature of some of our services in the community, meaning mental health services, kind of gives the impression that we have a high bar. That's not necessarily true, but the issue that we have under the mandate and the, the legislative mandate that we're under is we are serving those who are suffering from mental health concerns, mostly of the type of like schizophrenia, bipolar. 
And so our process begins, quite frankly, with a very simple application that's mostly demographic information, which is important to know for people. They're not disclosing their whole lives here. But what's really important, I stress this to anybody who calls us, attached to that application is a series of releases. And those releases, as, as you well know, are uh, allowing for their caregivers and providers, um, their current psychiatrist or doctor, um, PCP, um, to note any previous hospital experience or crisis experience. Signing those releases is probably more important than signing the application because it allows for those clinical folks at our area office and each of the area's um, offices in the, in, the, in the state to assess the person's clinical presentation and does that meet the criteria for the department services because we, we serve those with chronic mental health concerns. Um, and then they take that information and they send it down to the local site, their neighborhood basically, where folks like Dale do what we call a needs and means. Do they need our services? And is this the only means they have of getting those services? Um, and it is very much a conversation. We try to make it as easy as possible. And it's important to kind of get it out there that if you think that there's uh, um, confusion about how the application should go, the local site office is available. Anybody who has access to a computer just, pass, just enters mass.gov, backsplash DMH, it gets you right to the page. It tells you where your site office is and what the number is. It tells you what your area office is. It gives you the application and gives you the releases. If you don't have access to it, go to a library. And certainly one of the things that, um, or one of the places we get most of our referrals from are outpatient providers. And the second most is hospitals like Fuller, who see the need and, and help them make the application. And we do our best to do it in a timely way. And once it gets down to the site office level, to do it in a way that's inviting and allows the person to tell their story and, and ask for what they need. So you bring up a really good point or a really good uh, topic of when do you bring DMH in? When do you contact them? Now, obviously, for an individual in the community, feel free at any level of your journey with mental illness, um, whether it's newer or later, to submit an application and move forward. But for any listeners out there or agencies who assist individuals, there does come a point where this may be suggested, and especially for caseworkers who are listening, and in any caseworker that's worked in Massachusetts, there comes a time where you feel like you need to bring that topic and present that to the individual who you're serving. So at Fuller, we will broach that topic with an individual as, have you considered this um, historically? And it's been a while since I worked directly in case management. Historically, that conversation usually comes about with individuals who are have been, in, whether it be for a short amount of time or a long amount of time, significantly struggling with their mental health issues to the point where they need that additional support in order to maintain their independence, in order to maintain their safety. You know, we'll have folks come to Fuller regularly. Again, we're talking about chronic mental illness, so folks will have relapses and they'll have struggles. And I know that um, DMH has always been a fantastic resource and tool for our individuals who are chronically and significantly going through ups and downs, but also for folks who maybe aren't, but still need that support. Sure. I don't think it's ever too early 
personally. But if you have reached the level where you are at some place such as Fuller, fill out that application. Never hurts. Even if it's your fill first time. Fill out that application. Even if it's your first time. If you're worried about your symptoms, if you see your life changing, that you aren't enjoying what you used to enjoy or you aren't able to fulfill all of the responsibilities that you previously had, and you're not quite sure where to go, call your local office. It may mean that, yes, we can start an application, but in the meantime, let me give you the phone number where you can call to go speak to a mental health professional, an outpatient therapist, or have you talked to your primary care doctor about seeing a psychiatrist for a medication evaluation? You know, the application process can lead you to many other places. And it may be that someone applies and we see that there are other services that can meet their needs and they don't need the Department of Mental Health per se. They may be interested in the clubhouse and say Mass Rehab Commission. Then we would talk about that. The department never closes their doors. So if someone comes to us and we say, well, wouldn't you agree this and this would really meet your needs right now? They say yes, but if something changes, you call me back up and we will revisit your application. So Because life, people's lives do change, as you said. There are ups and downs in everybody's lives, one day, one day at a time. A lot of the applications, um, and I think it's important for folks to note that the Department of Mental Health actually serves a very small percentage of folks with chronic mental illness. Um, that most people are served quite well by their outpatient providers, even though they may be periodically and for short terms in an acute care hospital such as Fuller. But what we're, we're really looking at are those folks whose their function in their life is really being impacted. Um, folks who have lost their housing, folks who have lived perhaps with their mother and father for a long time, but mom and dad's no longer able to meet their needs. Folks who aren't able to thrive and do well. Um, that's not to say that we don't work for a short period of time with people who are just needing to adjust to changes. Our hope is that m the majority of our folks who come to our services will actually move on to more natural community supports uh, because we're really, as part of our mission, trying to serve people in the least restrictive environment possible and clinically appropriate. So if a person doesn't need to be in our long-term hospital, it's our job to get them into the community. And sometimes that work into the community means that they move from a hospital into perhaps a group home. It may mean that they go directly back to their homes with their families or into their own apartment. But we're always assessing what will serve this person best in the least restrictive and, and least cumbersome way. And sometimes by the time they've received our services, we've directed them in a way in which they're now living productively in the community. And that actually starts at the very beginning of the application process where our clinical people are looking at this package of information. And let's face it, a lot of the information comes to us representing the person's worst day in their lives. You know, if I get an outpatient referral and I've gotten them their information from Fuller, you're talking to me about, you know, somebody's really had a very difficult time. So it's our job to kind of take that information, but to also look at what the person's strengths are and in a person-centered way. We're inviting them to tell us those things. And so our, even at our clinical um, um, review of the person 
if if those folks feel that there's another service for them, they'll direct them to it. If it's decided that they do meet the clinical criteria and they come down to someone like Dale, Dale, is, again, is having that conversation with the person, not only about what they want, but what will serve your needs in the least restrictive, least cumbersome way that you can do it. And sometimes we have folks who just need to be directed to another outpatient clinic, um, may be directed to something like Mass Rehabilitative Commission for supports and going to work, or to our clubhouse, or like uh, day hospitals and um, partial day hospitals in the community. So it's really allowing us to be that hub again, as you mentioned, that might direct a person into DMH services or into more appropriate services for them. Just a quick clarification, what is the clubhouse? <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> a clubhouse, it's an organization that in and of itself is meant to meet the needs of folks in the community who are suffering from mental health concerns in an environment that is um, reflective of what they want. And they provide a work order day in which folks who are trying to get back into the community who need some supports or some education are able to use the resource of the clubhouse to engage the community in a productive way. I, I know you have a background, Carrie, in it. Maybe you have a better explanation than even I do. I was pretty impressed with your explanation, but um, so the clubhouse model was my first exposure to uh, mental health services, um, working with individuals with chronic mental health issues in mental health services in Massachusetts. That was my first job out of college, and it is essentially, so the clubhouse that I worked at was a converted mansion. Oh, I just... I have a thing for converted mansions, apparently. Um, it was a converted mansion that essentially provided uh, day day structure or a structured day for individuals, but outside of necessarily an outpatient clinical setting. So individuals would go to their outpatient clinic for their for groups for partial or for their counseling or medication um, appointments. They would come to the clubhouse maybe on the days that they weren't going to outpatient or the times they weren't to be exposed to different resources. Uh, primarily, and this is, mind you, early 2000s that I worked at the clubhouse, the primary focus was skill building and vocational rehabilitation. And that was really interesting. So vocational rehab, what does that look like? That is taking somebody who either may have never worked or had previously worked, who ended up going into crisis, going through this time frame, And more often than not, they did have DMH services, so they, had, they presented a significant need. And uh, they would come to us and they would receive skill training, resume training. They have what's called a supported employment model in which we would uh, we would identify positions and jobs at different retailers and factories and, and in the community and we would actually that the clubhouse took on the role of the person employed so uh, we would say obtain two positions at a local clothing retailer and the, what appealed to the retailers and what appealed to the businesses is the fact that we would, we as the coordinators and the employees of the clubhouse would go in and we would learn the job and we would learn about the, and we would be trained, kind of a train the trainer model. Then we would 
select and interview with the, the members of the clubhouse who were interested in trying that position. So then they would be hired and we would essentially guide them in the in the role and in the employment role and we would train them and we would assist them to start and then we'd slowly start to back off and allow them to take the role on and they were getting paid. So they were employees of that provider and we were employees of the clubhouse supporting them. One of the appealing factors was besides the fact that we trained and if needed would retrain an individual in that position, but we always guaranteed that that position would be covered, that shift would be covered. So I remember many, uh, many a time where I would either go in training or I would end up covering for somebody. So if, if the person in that role ended up becoming sick or was having a bad day, um, as again, this is part of their vocational rehab, I would go in and I would complete that job. And so that retailer wasn't actually paying me, but they got me doing that job and completing that. And that was one of the appealing factors. There's uh, so much more, you know what, maybe we'll add this on to a separate um, show is the role of of the clubhouse, because it really does more than even just what I had mentioned. I can say, though, yeah. that a sign of a real clubhouse person, I know that the listeners can't see you, but you absolutely light up when you talk about the clubhouse. And I don't think I've ever met a person who has provided services through a clubhouse that just didn't do that because it really is a very rewarding experience. And I think for the most part, it's probably the place where uh, people can make the most um, progress because it really is normalizing. It's bringing them into the real world where other people are working or going to school. So, you know, you're a real clubhouse person, Carrie. I am. Thank you. I am such a fan, huge yeah. fan. So, you know, one of the interesting things I'm, as I'm listening is all I kept thinking, and I, I'm a visual person, so as you're talking, I am literally envisioning, and whether it be your specific roles or the role of DMH itself, really is a person-centered point of contact. It's a state-funded point of contact for individuals with the significant chronic mental health, well, any chronic mental health issue or any mental health issue, um, to be able to obtain resources and services, whether it be directly through you or through your vendors. Now, one of the, the things you'd mentioned, uh, Dan, when you were talking about historically what the role of the DMH caseworker did, I, uh, that is the role that I recall from when I was in, in the clubhouse days, the bringing an individual, your, your client, um, to do whatever was needed, apply for SSI, you know, apply for food stamps, go grocery shopping, bring to appointments. Now, fast forward 20, almost 20 years, and... Nowadays, we see that in a, in, a, in a role as a assigned to what we call a CSP. I know we utilize them a, a lot in, at Fuller Community Service Provider. And there's a there's a ton of agencies for our listeners. There are agencies that are vendors of this service. So what's what's the difference, or do you guys work hand in hand with a community service provider? Well, let me I'll, I'll put the history together, and then Dale can talk about the, the what's on the ground right now. Um, In the good old days, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, as you mentioned, if you were a client, and we used that word um, back then, um, we try to talk about person served today, or the individual, or we try to name the person that we're dealing with. But back in those days, um, you couldn't be, you wouldn't be a 
client, so to speak, of the department without a case manager. So the case manager really was the, the core group or, or the core of a group of people servicing somebody. But over time, um, and again, I'll go back, that whether you were in a residential or the clubhouse or getting some outpatient services, if you were a DMH consumer, you had a case manager. That was really the definition of a client of the department. But over time, and as we said earlier, um, both because of resources and then also because we were sensitive as an agency to not duplicate services that are provided through insurances or through other state um, operations like mass rehab. Um, we kind of stepped back from that and became what we call now a service type. So if you're um, a member of the department, you may have a case manager or you may have a community provider like the adult community clinical resources that are helping you with your residential, which actually do a remarkable job of meeting the needs of folks um, in very practical ways, not only from their housing, but their outpatient, making sure they get their medications, bringing them to appointments, all those things that case managers might have done before. They do it. So it's not to say that when case managers withdrew, those things fell on the floor. They didn't. They were picked up by our providers, and they were through our vendored systems that are provided by the state. They do that, or it's the PAC program, or it's the clubhouse that does some of that. But we stepped back from all of that because it was really a duplication of services. If you're receiving this intensive service in the community through one of our providers, the case manager should be free to do it for um, those who don't have that, because we don't have unlimited resources. And because today it really is provided through a combination of federal, state, and private insurance or state-sponsored um, insurances, we meet the criteria that's required by those providers of funds. Um, and one of those is that we don't duplicate services as much as possible. It's not to say that somebody may have a case manager in any of those services because their, their needs may be greater or their risks may be greater. Um, so that's how we kind of moved from the case manager kind of doing or being the, the key role of all things to now being uh, one of the types of services that the department provides. So the role of the community support person is short-term case management. So frequently, folks are referred to the CSP program and the DMH application. It's short-term. So when I, if I get an application from somebody who's in CSP, then we look to see, do you need anything else? Did you reach your goals? Um, so yes, in CSP, would do the same types of things that our case managers do. Our case managers may take you to the grocery store and then they'll teach you how to take the bus to go to the grocery store, but theirs is short term and ours does not have an end of service day. So they're very similar, but you wouldn't have a, a community support person and a case manager at the same time because it would be a duplication of services. Duplication of services. So I think sometimes an outpatient therapist might feel that their client only needs short term and may refer them to the CSP, and then the CSP thinks, oh no, you might need more longevity with your support, and then they bring it over to us. So if someone were to come to you, for instance, they apply, and you had an opportunity to vet their application, and maybe they fall more in the category of not quite in need enough, needs and means enough to be able to require a DMH 
uh, signed case manager, would you or have your have you guys um, referred to we have, a CSP we provider? Have, absolutely, we have referred to a CSP provider, and then we let them know if something should change and you need a longer amount of time of support, call us back. But in today, this is what we see today. Just for folks that are listening, the CSP is a service. And so it's not just something that's provided by one entity, nonprofit or for-profit in our state. It actually it can be provided by uh, many agencies. And um, it's, what I'm hearing too is in the same breath, a CSP provider agency or an individual who's a CSP to somebody may notice a greater need and would they refer? And they would refer to me. We get many referrals from CSP. We are talking with the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health representatives, uh, specifically for the Taunton and Attleboro area here in Massachusetts. Dale, is there any resources specifically for folks that may be in the Taunton and Attleboro area that we could share with them? Sure. I'm very excited to talk about our new caregiver support group, which is for anybody in our Taunton, Attleboro, greater area, Middleborough, Lakeville, Seekonk. And it meets the third Tuesday of every month at our site office in Taunton. And it's also posted on the NAMI website, the National Association for Mental Illness, NAMI.com. And for more information on that, our listeners can call 508-977-3174. So this caregiver support group is for anybody who is has any type of relationship with anybody who might be having um, challenges with mental health issues. Parents, partners, children, caregivers, friends, um, there'll be some education around mental health, there will be support, and there will be training on advocacy, and lots of information on how to access resources for the caregiver themselves or for their loved one. Carrie, do you want to go over the resources from Fuller? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, just to let our folks know, our listeners, we offline were just chatting about the fact that Dale, Dan, you guys are fantastic guests. We're getting a lot of really pertinent information for our community. So this will be part one of two. So we look forward to inviting and we extend an invite for um, for Dale and Dan and whoever from DMH wants to come for a part two to kind of further discuss some of these awesome services and how to access and who they're for. So for our listeners out there, uh, if you have questions in the interim and would like to email us any questions about uh, our guests or about our podcast, you can reach us at mentalillness at wararadio.com. Our podcast airs on a variety of platforms. Austin, did you want to share Sure. So if you're in the Attleboro area, uh, it airs on Mondays from 6 to 7 p.m. You can also go to WARARadio.com to listen to the podcast at any time. Uh, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. So if you use any of those podcast apps for your phone or on your computer, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash exploring mental illness. And on YouTube, if you go to youtube.com slash double ACS, you'll see a playlist for exploring mental illness. 
And for individuals and listeners who are interested in um, learning more about services for individuals who have mental health issues, substance abuse, or domestic violence issues, we do have a Greater Attleboro Drop-In Center, though anybody is invited who's in the Attleboro area. The last Wednesday of every month, this is called the You Are Not Alone Drop-In Center. It is 505 North Main Street here in Attleboro at the Mara Unitarian Universalist Church. Again, it's a collaborative um, and collection of resources around those three areas of need, both inpatient, outpatient, community groups, sober homes that come together between 5.30 and 8 p.m., to open our doors and offer information, advice, Narcan training. We offer free Narcan training as well as a clinical component for those that may desire to seek voluntary treatment. We protect uh, individuals' privacy. We promote anonymity. We do not discriminate on your background, your geography, anything along those lines. We encourage you, please, if you're an individual who has a need around mental health, substance abuse, or domestic violence, or if you are a family member or a loved one who just wants to get resources for themselves or for their loved one, please come and see us. Uh, we do have a Facebook page at Attleboro Recovery uh, or Facebook forward slash Attleboro Recovery. For anybody who's interested in learning more about Fuller Hospital and our services, um, you can go to www.fullerhospital.com. We have a description of our services as well as ways to reach us electronically or via phone and also forms that you can download for our services and brochures. Uh, We also have a Facebook page at Fuller Hospital, and we have a a new phone number that you can contact to reach us for questions about our services, Um, and us also, you could reach me directly. So our number is 833-338-5537, and I'm Carrie Ballou. You can ask for me by name, or I can be reached at extension 2354 when you contact that number. All right, folks. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be back to uh, talk a little bit more about the uh, Department of Mental Health and all the resources that they offer. Uh, Dale and Dan, thanks for coming in. Uh, We look forward to talking with you both again. Thank you for having us. And in lieu of my co-host who is not here today, to our listeners out there, be well. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast, its associated website, and any links material are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast or its associated website. If the listener or any other person has a medical concern, they should consult an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of Attleboro Access Cable Systems, Arbor Fuller Hospital, or their parents' corporations. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast and its associated website are copyrighted Attleboro Access Cable Systems. The podcast may be redistributed in accordance with Creative Commons License 4.0.